Hello and welcome to Short That's right. This is Short Circuit Live, live from the University of Montana School of Law. I am so excited to be back in Montana. This is Anthony Sanders, the director of the Center for Judicial Engagement. And uh, listeners may know that from time to time, we do these episodes short circuit live. Now, usually we talk about a federal circuit. We've done the Ninth Circuit, the D.C. Circuit, the uh, Fifth Circuit, various circuits over the years. But today, for the first time, we're doing a state Supreme Court. You may say, but you're short circuit. Well, we also talk about state Supreme Court cases on short circuit um, from time to time. We've even done whole specials on state constitutional uh, issues. But we're doing this on the Montana Supreme Court because I am at the University of Montana for a symposium about the 50th anniversary of the Montana Constitution, a constitution I really uh, think a lot of and um, I know a bit about because of my, my clerkship at the Montana Supreme Court. And so it's so exciting to be here so we can talk a little bit about the Montana Constitution and just uh, Montana practice in general. Now, we have a packed room full of Montana students here to see us uh, talk about various Montana law issues. But we also have three powerhouse Montana litigators um, with me today to talk about these different issues. And I'll be introducing them in a second. First, thank you to the organizers of this event, um, the, uh, the Montana Law Review the, and the local Federal Society and AC, uh, American Constitution Society chapters um, for putting this all together. So we'll move on to our panelists First, we're going to hear from Natasha or Tasha Jones. She is a graduate of this very law school, the University of Montana School of Law. Um, she then clerk went on to clerk for Judge um, Sam Hayden of the U.S. District Court for the District of Montana. Where, where's Judge Hayden's? Haddon. Haddon. Mm-hmm. I'm very sorry. No, no problem. He, he would not like it, but he's not here. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, city was that in? I was in Great Falls, but he's now in Helena. Okay. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, both great towns uh, to spend a little time clerking in. Then she went on and she has been a shareholder since 2008 in Boone Carlberg. She does all kinds of uh, trial and appellate work. And she'll be talking about a case at uh, where she argued as an amicus um, at the Montana Supreme Court, um, that the decision that just came out a couple weeks ago. Next, we will hear from Colin Stevens. He is a part of Stevens and Brook. He is a graduate of Carroll College and the University of Montana. Like me, he got a graduate or a master's degree in philosophy, and we were just discussing they've, they've come up very useful in our, in our practice. Um, I say that mostly tongue-in-cheek, but not entirely tongue-in-cheek. Then he went on to get a law degree from the University of Montana. And it, at Carroll College, by the way, when I lived in Helena, they were like a powerhouse football team. I mean, like repetitive national champions. Is it, you know if it's still that way? It should be. But <laughs> I think this year where we could be doing better. Okay. Rebuilding program, right. perhaps. When I was yeah. there, they still played at a middle school. <laughs> so it's been a while. Very good. Yeah. I went to one game there. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun um, the, the fall I was there. And uh, 
he is going to, he is a primarily a criminal practice at Stevens uh, and Brook PC here in, in um, Missoula. And then finally, we're going to hear from Riley Summers Flanagan. She is the founder of her, uh, her and her partner's own public interest law firm. Now, working at a public interest law firm, I know from stories I've heard from the founders of the law firm, that is not exactly an easy task. And so um, she should feel very proud of herself and the, and the work that they've done at Upper Seven Law since it was found, founded uh, a little over a year ago. She is a graduate of Stanford Law School, which is also where my co-clerk at, uh, um, uh, at uh, Montana Supreme Court went uh, when, when we clerked there. And she then went on to clerk for a trifecta of judges, um, Judge Sidney Thomas on the Ninth Circuit and Judge, I'm going to mangle these names too, uh, Huvel and Hogan, uh, get that right? Very close. Okay. Of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Uh, and she is going to talk about a case that she, um, it, uh, it, it has gone to the, the Montana Supreme Court on a preliminary matter. But it's going to um, – they just had a trial in the trial court, and she is going to be anxiously checking her phone while we're talking to see if the ruling has come out. It's a voting rights case. And so we may break some news here um, on the podcast. We'll, we'll wait and see. But uh, we'll give that a little bit of time, and first we'll go to Natasha for a case. And I will give a massive disclaimer at the beginning – this is a case where Tasha was for an amicus for the cities on counties on one side, and the Institute for Justice signed on to a brief written by the uh, MacArthur Center on the other side. But we can still sit here and talk about the case, and, um, and all's going to be fine. So uh, tell us about LB. Okay. So let me just uh, set the stage about why I am talking about this case, because this was not my case, and we were asked to come in. Uh, as amicus in that case. So um, I've been practicing for 22 years, and a very significant part of my practice has been working for uh, an organization called the Montana Municipal Interlocal Authority. And what that is is a collection of cities and towns that pool their resources together to provide defense and indemnity when uh, cities and towns or their employees are sued for any reason. So that can be a slip and fall on the sidewalk. That can be a significant land dispute over zoning, you know, something like that. Or it can be a, uh, a claim or lawsuit filed against a police department or police officer alleging excessive force or some other violation of law um, uh, related to law enforcement. And a lot of the cases are about law enforcement. Um, law, law enforcement officers um, have hard jobs and they get sued a lot. Um, and we, uh, cities and towns, generally speaking, get sued a lot because they are deemed to be deep pockets. Um, uh, they have uh, resources, um, basically all of our resources, um, that, that stand behind them. And so there are, there's just a lot of litigation against our cities and towns. Um, and so that's, that's the background that, that made my law firm appropriate uh, to uh, act uh, in the role of amicus as it relates to this case, LB. Um, I, we have not done a lot of work for the counties. So the counties have, have a similar association. Um, uh, and it's, it's referred to as MACO. 
Um, Colin actually worked for MAKO a long time ago. Um, but the same situation where it's a collection, there's membership, they provide defense and indemnity when county organizations or entities are sued. And we often team up with uh, MAKO because a lot of cases have both a law enforcement, a city law enforcement agency, and then the sheriff's office. They have uh, agreements where they back each other up. They they appear at the same calls. And so there's a lot of overlap, but usually that's not my client. In this case, it was. In addition to that, uh, my law firm and uh, my partner, Tracy Neighbor Johnson, and I had um, had had some some cases that were similar to LB. So we had represented uh, the city of Helena, as an example, where a rogue undercover law enforcement officer had engaged in sex, consensual sex, with four confidential informants. And when that came to light, he was, he, he was going to be fired and resigned in lieu of termination and had his certificate um, revoked. And then uh, those individuals who had been interviewed and said the sex was consensual then hired a plaintiff's lawyer and sued the city uh, for tort damages uh, for what they claimed to be uh, inappropriate conduct um, on our part in hiring, training, supervising that officer. That case we won on summary judgment because the judge said that that conduct, sex with confidential informants, was not in the course and scope of, your, of his employment as an undercover agent. So there's, there's why we got the ask. So let me tell you about um, LB, and this was not my case. So LB uh, is, is a Northern Cheyenne tribal member living on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Lame Deer, Montana. In 2015, she and her mother left the reservation, and they went to a bar and they engaged in um, partying. So they were drinking together at a bar off the reservation. They returned home to the reservation, and the mother took the keys and said she was going to drive. Her daughter called the cops and turned her mom in for drunk driving. Um, a, a Bureau of Indian Affairs agent, a BIA agent, federal agent, named Op Officer Dana Bullcoming responded to the call. Uh, Officer Bullcoming went to LB's home, and when... Um, and, and she, you know, investigated the, the circumstances surrounding the mother's intoxication. They, they figured out the mom was safe, all was good there. But while he was in the home with LB, uh, he questioned her, and um, she was in intoxicated herself. Um, and she disclosed that she had been drinking. Uh, I think there was evidence she was visibly intoxicated. And he threatened to call social services and arrest LB for violating tribal code that pro prohibits intoxication within the reservation boundaries. Um, the Cheyenne Reservation is a dry reservation. Um, the, the two went outside, and he performed a blood alcohol test on LB, and her BAC was either 0.132 or 0.136. She couldn't remember which. Clearly, she was very intoxicated. At which time, the officer allegedly repeatedly stated Something has to be done. Kept saying that. Something has to be done. Uh, and uh, LB, um, catching the hint, said, do you mean sex? And he said yes. So they went into the home, 
they engaged in sex that resulted, unprotected sex that resulted in pregnancy and the birth of uh, a child named DB. Those are the facts. Now, again, before you get mad at me, this is not my client. This is not my case. Um, I was not involved in any of that, and still I'm not involved because that case is ongoing. Um, so they, this, this case went to the Ninth Circuit because summary judgment had been granted by the district, the federal district court judge in Billings over course and scope. And at the Ninth Circuit, when they were analyzing the issues presented there, they, uh, they issued a certified question back to the Montana Supreme Court asking the Supreme Court to determine is there, there was some conflict in the law, also some cases that we had worked on at Boone Carlberg, about whether or not this behavior could be, could be considered to be within the course and scope of employment. Um, and the question was, as reformatted um, by the Montana Supreme Court, under Montana law, do law enforcement officers act outside the scope and course of their employment as a matter of law when they use their authority as on-duty officers to sexually assault a person they are investigating for a crime? So there's the question posed to the Montana Supreme Court. So the, the, the um, plaintiffs filed appellate briefs, and there were multiple amici um, that were filed on the plaintiff's behalf. The federal government filed an appellate brief, and then we filed um, a uh, amicus brief arguing from the perspective of, of cities and towns. And, and our perspective really was that our cities and towns are uh, overburdened already, that municipal governments are underfunded, and that includes law enforcement agencies, and that if you impose strict liability for intentional criminal conduct, it will have a ripple effect. And that is why this type of decision should be left to the legislature. And we said you need to hearken back to a case called McGuire, where that court said if there's going to be a change in this area of the law, it needs to come from the legislature. So that was really kind of the juxta of our argument. So what happened? Um, some of you may have seen the oral argument, and you will know I didn't get enough time. <laughs> so I was so happy to come here and say all the things that I should have said then that I didn't get to say because I didn't have enough time. Um, and, and, of course, how that works is, you know, you each get 30 minutes, and, and I, had a, I had a gentleman that went first, and he took too long, and I didn't have enough time left. Um, so, we, unfortunately... We know that story well at IJ, by the way. Right, right. Yeah. I know it, yeah. Okay, and then, so, so what happened? Well, darn it, they came to the wrong decision, unfortunately. Uh, the Montana Supreme Court issued a 5-2 five, five decision to the certified question. Uh, the decision came down, McKinnon, Negrath, Baker, Gustafson, and Shea, in case you're interested in that. And then Judge Sanifer uh, dissented, and Judge Rice, uh, Justice Rice uh, joined in the dissent. Um, and uh, so what does this mean? This means that, um, that now this decision is in conflict with existing Montana law. So let, let me read to you the, the law in Montana right now. Um, under Montana Code Annotated 29102, governmental entities are liable for to torts except 
certain categories, right? And a governmental entity has a duty to defend and indemnify its employees, except, and this goes to 29305, if the conduct constitutes a criminal, criminal offense. So now we have a decision that says it's a fact issue as to whether or not this is within the course and scope of employment, raping somebody on the job. And the, the law that says, let me, let me be more clear about this, Governmental, government employees may not be defended you cannot defend them, and you cannot indemnify them if they engage in, a criminal, con in criminal conduct. So, so we got a real issue here. So the, the, the majority said uh, that McGuire is still good law but doesn't apply here. They did criticize it, um, but they said it simply did not apply. And, um, and, and in that case, just briefly about McGuire, so that case was a worker um, in a center for extremely developmentally disabled individuals. That worker's job was to care for a uh, very disabled person who was nonverbal, and in the course of that care, um, raped and impregnated the victim. And the Montana Supreme Court said, not in the course and scope, and if there's going to be a change, it needs to come from the legislature. Um, but, but our majority court here said that doesn't apply because they did not uh, review the, the issue. In, in their opinion, I, I think that was incorrect, but they, they did not. They said McGuire didn't touch upon the relevant things. It came down to this issue. LB, the decision in LB came down to whether there was a mixed motive and if you were at the oral argument, do you remember I quarreled with Judge Justice Sanifer about this issue, right? I said, never, never is there a mixed motive for rape. Never. That is never a part of a law enforcement officer's job. Uh, unfortunately, the majority disagreed with me, and it appears Judge Sanifer, who wrote the dissent, because they said that it was an issue of fact as to whether or not when the officer um, used his authority to basically bully LB into sex, that um, he may have also, in addition to gratifying himself sexually, wanted to save taxpayers money by issuing a warning rather than arresting LB. And that that was an issue of fact that a jury needs to, to decide. And so on that basis, they, they kicked it back. Uh, to the Ninth Circuit answering the question um, that Montana law does not uh, clearly state that this, that this type of conduct is outside of the course and scope of employment. Um, let me just talk a little bit about the dissent. It was my favorite part, right? <laughs> um, what, what Justice Sanifer said was that the majority had engaged had earnestly applied clear and consistent precedent on the issue of respondent superior. And remember here, what we're talking about is, is direct liability um, on the one hand and indirect liability, which is vicarious liability, here. 
So there, if you negligently hire, train, supervise an officer, a department can be held directly liable for that under negligence. Here, that wasn't the case. They're saying that you didn't do anything wrong, but because the officer committed a crime, you're, you're on the hook for that criminal conduct. And so Justice Sandifer said they erroneously applied con uh, consistent and clear precedent in a result-oriented manner to, to, to reach a, a desired ad hoc result. Because, this is what he says, they wanted to provide a remedy you know, make the government financially liable to an innocent victim for outrageous, tortious criminal conduct of a rogue law enforcement officer. That is, that is the, the words of Justice Sandifer, not me. Um, he also said that their analysis was patently erroneous uh, and in manifest absence of any record, there was no evidentiary basis upon which a finder of fact could reasonably con conclude that the officer was acting with any motive or purpose other than for his own sexual gratification. So you can see here, that was really the tension here, is who gets to make this call, a jury or the judge, as a matter of law. And from Justice Sandifer's perspective, they're just, the record wasn't clear enough, and it was, it was just going to be speculation. Now remember, I had that same argument with, if you saw the, the oral argument, I had that same discussion with Justice Shea. He wanted this to kick to this to the jury. And I said, that's a terrible idea. That's a terrible idea. Why? Because never, never is sex a part of the job. Never are you forwarding the interests of your employer when you cross the line as a law enforcement officer and you engage in sex with anybody. You, that you're a criminal at that point. So that's the tension there. Tasha, and if, if I can ask a question, uh, a step back, that the reason why this was a certified question is because, is it right, that under the Federal Tort Claims Act, the, the government is liable if the employee um, acts within the scope of their employment. Is that, is that long story short? And then that analysis goes to Montana law. It goes to the state law. Right, right. right? right. So there, there is a, a, a reference under the Federal Tort Claims Act that you need to re resort to, to Montana law to make that call. And then that's where the conflict was. Right. And um, one, one other th interesting part about this story that regular listeners will know about the, the, a bit about the FTCA, the act we just talked about, and then Bivens claims, which are claims against federal officers in their individual capacity, this fellow was sued under Bivens, but he didn't even show up to court, so they did get a judgment against him. Correct. Um, a, a default judgment, but of course, he's not going to, I think he's in prison now, or he was in prison, so he's, he's probably not very able to pay that judgment. Uh, and that's right. I mean, th so the, the issue here, and um, frankly, the issue for many victims of crimes, there was no money to make that victim whole for, for the clear damage that had occurred uh, to her and her child. Um, and the bad guy was in jail, and he had nothing anyway. Even if he was out of jail, he didn't have any money, right? And so should there be a remedy? And, and this, is, this, is, this was the, t the, the poll, right? I mean, that's a very emotionally charged argument. And, and what we were suggesting to the Montana Supreme Court is that's a legislative issue, Right. Um, that, that the legislator is best suited to determine whether or not 
we needed as citizens to decide that a certain segment of criminal victims should have a remedy when the tortfeasor, the, the, the bad guy, doesn't have any money. Right. And, and, and even though this was against the United States, the Montana units of government are sitting in the background because of the precedent that the case was set. Right? That's right. So we, we, that's why we came in and were allowed to come in because this ruling affects all of us. In all in all Montana communities, Bradley, you have any thought, thoughts on the, the the ruling? I you know I I think that I re- I I will just compliment Tasha for how incredibly clearly she has laid out these issues, and I think also presented the real tension in the case um, because I think that when we are thinking about issues like this. I, I probably land on the side of um, I, I haven't read the decision, so I, I hesitate to question the majority's reasoning. Um, but based on your presentation, I you know to me it seems much clearer that we should just when when officials are acting in their official capacity, they should be held liable for their actions, and the state should also be held liable for their actions because states have a responsibility for their you know for the folks that that they employ. Um, in training and all of, but it does present genuinely difficult questions around funding, um, especially for smaller government bodies. Um, and so I just, you know, Tasha's presentation of, of sort of what the issues are seemed to me very clearly right, Mm -hmm. regardless of which side we end up landing on, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's really tough issues, right? I mean, what, what, could there be a more sympathetic victim here? Right. Right. I mean, and, 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 you know, and, and at the other argument, we saw, um, our, you know, the first speaker was the amicus talking about violence against Native American women and, um, and true story, big issue, you know, sexual assault, big issue, societal problem. Um, but there are many, many victims of crimes who go without remedies. And so without, without sufficient monetary remedies. And when, let me give an example. So in, um, if you've been wrongly accused and you've been in prison for many, many years, and then you are let out of prison because now we have DNA. Um, as, as a state, we have now uh, passed into law a structure, a legislative structure, where you can go and, and, and seek payment for those years when you have been wrongfully imprisoned. So, so our state has decided that as a matter of public policy, we want those individuals to have a remedy. And I, I personally agree with that because, and, and been involved in these cases personally, but uh, because those to relitigate the innocence or guilt of somebody after they've spent 20 years in jail and the, the, the folks that, that, were, that originally testified are dead and gone or unavailable, uh, very, very difficult to do. And so we can't, we can't take those cases through normal process. So we created a structure. And so th- that's what we were suggesting is the, these issues are very hard to deal with. Um, but making a law enforcement department strictly liable for intentional criminal conduct, our argument doesn't stop the original crime. In fact, it may encourage it, right? So what should be a deterrent to a police officer is that if I engage in criminal activity, if I use my badge to be a bad guy instead of a good guy, 
I am going to go to jail and then someone is going to sue me and take my house and my car and my retirement account and ruin my life. That is a deterrent. Now, now, if a, if a, if a police officer is faced with that quandary, do I turn bad guy at this moment? That officer knows I'm going to get a lawyer for free and the, off, and the department has to indemnify me uh, for damages because there's strict liability for intentional criminal conduct. I mean, so again, as a matter of policy, that, that was the argument that we were making to the Montana Supreme Court. Don't do this. This, is, this needs to be a legislative uh, analysis. We also presented evidence about the statistics about law enforcement officers um, who engage in this sort of behavior um, because, um, you know, clearly sexual assault is a big problem. Clearly violence against Native American women, big problem. But the data to say that sexual assault by law enforcement officers is not evidence of a systemic problem. So we presented um, statistical evidence based on an analysis of claims against law enforcement officers from 2013 to the present date to show that this is not a problem in Montana, and that is conflating big-picture problems sexual assault, generally speaking, violence against Native American women, generally speaking. But to connect that into uh, sexual assault by law enforcement officers, that the data isn't there. And and so we were saying, you you, you really can't tie these things together. So we could talk about this for hours, um, and I would like to. But to stay on our our short-circuit schedule, we'll we'll move along, Um, I... uh, uh, I think that's a terrific presentation of uh, of the issue, and I I will say that in this I'm glad even though this he will not be able to pay it this man actually did get a judgment uh, against him which often is not true uh, of course with, when when officers are, are sued for reprehensible conduct so um, uh, I I hope that this can um, you know lead to some reform in in Montana leg- legislatively because we can always. We can always have that as a, um, uh, the legislature can always address the issue in a better way. The biggest thing is for Congress to address the FTCA and Bivens remedies. Um, but that's something we've talked about in short circuit before and will many times again. So we'll leave that to another day. You know, something I left out at the beginning is to talk just a little bit. We'll talk just very briefly about um, practicing before the Montana Supreme Court and what the court is like. So the court is uh, seven justices it has a right of appeal from any final judgment from a state court because there is no intermediate appellate court in Montana. It's one of the last states left without an intermediate court, which makes things interesting when you're clerking at the court and all the kinds of cases you get. But any of you want to want to say what what uh, you think uh, the listeners would want to know about Montana's uh, court system, Montana Supreme Court versus versus practicing elsewhere? Well, um, I, I think there's been a lot of politics around our Montana Supreme Court in Montana lately. So I would just point out a few things that make makes Montana, uh, m- like some states and different from others, um, our Montana Supreme Court, Court justices have to run in statewide elections. Uh, and, and so I, I say that because that is a difficult thing to do and a very expensive thing to do. Um, they are nonpartisan uh, uh, elections. Um, and so, you know, it's not supposed to be about, um, 
Democrat versus Republican. Um, but, you know, it's an expensive endeavor to run a statewide campaign. Um, and they come to the table with their own particular um, experience. And it's the first thing that I looked at when I'm saying when I'm going to go argue before them. I pulled up their background so I could remind myself of whether there was a particular background that would be relevant um, to the case. So as a practice point here. Like um, Justice Sandifer, for example. Right, exactly. I was going to say, so you may not know this, but Justice Sandifer was a law enforcement officer. Yeah, so, uh, and then many of the other justices uh, had criminal backgrounds experience on um, one side or the other, prosecution or defense. Uh, and then not very many of them had civil had civil background. And so that was important to me because I wasn't commenting on the criminal law, right? I was saying, you got to think about the ramifications in, in the civil tort arena and what this could mean. So their backgrounds may, were, were important to me. And Colin, we were talking before we started taping about how the court could use a little more oral argument, you, yeah. you think, at times, for yeah. some friendly suggestions from the, the podcast here. Right. I mean, So you get... I'm always the appellant, so um, I get 40 minutes, I think, when I argue with the court, and uh, or before the court, I should say. Maybe not. Um, and that's a long time to make a point. Uh, my theory is that they should be doing more oral arguments, uh, less time. Oral advocacy is a skill, which I have yet to perfect, but all of you in this room are going to face very small opportunities where you will get to argue before a court of appeals, be it the Ninth or the Montana Supreme Court. So more oral arguments, the better. So less equals more in this case. It could equal yeah. more. Yes. Yeah. Do you, do you agree, Riley? They, they oh, could absolutely. use a, a few more arguments there. I mean... Isn't it just more fun? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like they should want to see our, our happy faces. Um, and and I, I also think 40 minutes seems like it would be a very long time to be talking to a court, depending on how many questions it may have. Um, and, you know, that can really vary dramatically case by case. Yeah, they've started. I, so I've argued, I think, in front of the court seven times, maybe six. Um and when I first started, they were great. They would just sort of jump right in. And now they have sort of extended this, like, we're going to let you talk for a little bit. Following and, the, the folks in Washington? Yeah, and I hate yeah. the sound of my own voice. And you didn't invite me here to listen to me talk and just read my brief verbatim. So I usually try to go in and say something incredibly controversial. And it's usually Justice Sandifer who will then lean in <laughs> um, with, his, with his cop attitude and say, counsel, and then we're off to the races. So... Um, it's fun. I mean, it's my favorite part of practicing law is oral, oral advocacy at the ninth at front of the Montana Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah when, when I was clerking, it was always fun. You know, to, we, we rotated so it's that, that you were the clerk that day with the gavel. And that was the one day you would actually wear a suit in that job. Every other day you wear jeans um, and tap, tap, tap and you know, start the argument. But there were so few of them. There were, it was almost like there were more attorney discipline hearings. Because those were the public and in the well when they discipline an attorney. Then an actual oral argument. I think we had like two a month or, you know, I one case, know. one morning. Um, so otherwise, fantastic place to clerk. Uh, Helena is a great place to live. I recommend people listening out there to, uh, to apply if you're applying to clerkships in the future. Um, but maybe a, a few more oral arguments. Now, this I don't know if this case got oral argument or not. 
They did not, but it was it, it 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 did get an interesting concurrence. So Colin's now going to tell us about a state versus well known. Yeah, so I'll start. Um, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I'm not a powerhouse, and so I guess thank you for that. But if I did, it would have a crescent moon on it. Oh, did you get breaking news? No. Right. I just wanted to say that the reason I haven't argued before the Montana Supreme Court is that the state keeps refusing to appeal when we win. It's always very frustrating. <laughs> That's And from my perspective, thank you again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Riley represented my, my organization. Okay, state versus well-known. I don't like talking to unknown people on the internet, so I'm going to talk to you folks. Um, um, it's a criminal case, and basically at the end of the day, it's about a Batson challenge. Um, anybody here know Batson? Okay, not personally, right? I'm not asking personally. Does anybody know what Batson is? Maybe down there. I, I see one hand. Okay, so Batson is voir dire um, issue. It is unconstitutional to exclude uh, people of race, people based on their race, foreign, um, national origin, or gender. Um, so that's Batson in a real short form. Uh, State versus well-known. Mr. Well-known was on trial for a felony DUI in Billings, and Mr. Well-known is native. So Billings being the hotbed of sort of, well, let's see, I'll just pull up the statistics. Uh, Yellowstone County, basically you want to lump it into 15.4% of minority or mixed-race individuals at the time of the trial at least according to the 2020 census. There's one Native American on Mr. Wellknown's jury, um, a guy I think by the name of Ground, Ground Spring, I might, or Birding Ground, so I might pronounce that wrong. Anyway, um, so one Native American in the veneery, and um, the state doesn't ask him any questions. Prosecutors tend to, no offense if there's a prosecutor out there, but they do voir dire in this very kind of third-grade way where they will say, They'll posit something and then say, does anyone here disagree with that? And, um, you know, the, one of the, my colleague just had a case where it was child sexual assault. And the prosecutor stands up and says, who here likes child sexual assault? And, you know, that's not a question. So anyway, um, the state, from what I can tell from the record, it wasn't my case, does their usual rigmarole of who, you know, who thinks drink, drunk driving is good who here's had a loved one who's been affected by drunk driving. Um, so Mr. Burning Ground uh, in the venere doesn't say anything. State passes the jury for cause. Uh, the defense asks, you know, everyone some questions, and defense lawyers do tend to do a better job because I always feel like we're behind the eight ball. So we will single people out, you know, and say, I noticed when you know, the state asks you a question about whether you like child sexual assault or not, you were somewhat reluctant to raise your hand. It didn't shoot up like you were being electrocuted. What do you think about that? Um, that's a bit of a reductio, but you, I think we tend to drill down more. So anyway, prosecution comes around. The, eventually, the defense passes the jury for cause. Um, prosecution uses its peremptory strike on Mr. Birding Ground. So... At this point, the record gets a little muddled. Trial counsel then says, hold on, I'm going to make a Batson challenge. Um, The state did not, I want the state to present a um, non-race-based reason for why it is 
striking Mr. Burning Ground. And so then the state, which, you know, bless him, prosecutor comes forward and says, well, you know, I know we didn't talk about this before in voir dire, judge, but Mr. Burning Ground was actually the victim of a violent sexual assault at the hands of his girlfriend. And oh, by the way, he was very uncooperative with us. And we eventually had to give his uh, girlfriend a deal. So his hostility to the prosecution is one of the reasons we're striking him. Judge says, great, your uh, Batson objection is overruled. Um, Moving on. And then all of a sudden, the state comes in and says, oh, oh, and judge, by the way, afterthought, when Mr. Burning Ground was asked questions about the presumption of proof, he said he'd have to be 100% certain before he convicted. And that's not the standard. And the judge just sort of, yada, 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 I'm standing with my decision. So um, Mr. Wellknown is convicted. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be talking about this. And so it goes up on appeal, and I don't know for those of you who are unfamiliar with the public defender system in Montana, you've got trial department, and then you've got an appellate department. And so the case then gets handed off to the appellate department, who can then read this record and go, you know what? It's a good Batson case, but this would be a wonderful time for us to raise the dignity clause of the Montana Constitution, Article 2, Section 4, It's amazing. If you haven't read it, you probably shouldn't be sitting in here. Um, And the Dignity Clause is sort of this vast umbrella of protection and recognition of of race and um, social structure and culture that extends so far beyond Batson that it makes Batson essentially the Stone Age. So... Well-known is it's somewhat of an unremarkable case because the majority just says, well, the district court didn't exactly do it right, but it's interesting. In the briefs, in Mr. Well-known's brief, 35 years between Batson and Well-known's case, the Montana Supreme Court has yet to sustain or reverse on a Batson challenge Um, for various reasons. But anyway... um, So the majority just kind of is like, well, you didn't raise this dignity clause at the trial level. You didn't raise it, so we're not going to consider it. It's not plain error. Um, Denied. And in comes Justice Baker, who's awesome, and she has a concurring opinion. And she says, I agree with the majority's opinion, but there are issues that are raised by Article 2, Section 4, and that are evolving in our society with unconscious bias and implicit bias that we need to start working on. Um, And so for, I think, Justice Baker, had defense counsel said, Your Honor, I object, Batson, and Dignity Clause, this case probably would have had a different result. Um, Justice McKinnon has a comment in a past case where she concurred where she seemed to have suggested that, um, you know, the dignity clause and an expanded sort of equal protection recognition of various other protected classes would be, would be available. Um, and it's just fascinating to me because, you know, Batson is a really narrow group of protection. Um, the Ninth Circuit came out with a decision, what, August 22nd, I was just reading as I was doing my last-minute homework for this, um, And this was a prosecution out of California where the prosecutors struck Hispanic females. Um, And the defendant said, 
objection Batson. And it churns through the lower courts, comes up on a federal habeas, and the Ninth Circuit says, well, that's not, you know, you, the prosecution kept Hispanic males um, and it kept males. And so you're trying to do this mixed race protected class that doesn't exist and it's never been recognized. So your appeal's denied. Um, and it's just, it's an, it's an interesting case. And I think it's, it's definitely fertile ground for those of you who go out and want to be trial lawyers and who want to, who want to drill down in with jurors, um, remember the dignity clause. Justice Baker also, and I will just say, she has a footnote, um, it's footnote number eight, where she says she's directing, so she's sort of encouraging the various committees that the Montana Supreme Court has to start recognizing implicit and um, unconscious bias. I think now there are draft um, jury instructions that are going to go around that are part of the preliminary instructions that judges will give that address unconscious and implicit bias. So her concurrence may be just that, but I think she's going to be the cause of real change. It's always in the footnotes, isn't it? That's where the best stuff happens. Right? I mean, like Lochner's got brilliant footnotes. So. Caroline yeah. products, as we all know. Right, exactly. So it's fun, right? I mean, there's this, well, the, the birth certificate challenge that just sort of got decided today. Um, the Department of Health and Human Services filed this, you know, they, we don't want you to change your birth certificate, right? Because sex is an immutable characteristic. And, you know, back in the 70s, that was rah-rah, right? Immutable characteristics get you equal protection challenge. And now it's sort of this weird shift between ideology where, you know, it's the more conservative groups that are saying, well, no, it's, right. this is immutable. And others are saying, no, it's more fluid. So it's just a fascinating a fascinating issue. And again, I will emphasize I'm a criminal defense lawyer and torts and yeah. I mean, if you talk to my clients, cops are always metaphorically doing what that cop did. So um, that's just, that's, yeah. Well, we've seen both SOP. sides of the, the coin here yeah. uh, today. But a different coin is people going to vote. So, uh, Riley, tell us how you, you get to vote in Montana and um, how the rules might be a little fluid, changing. We're not sure what they are exactly right now, but they may change because of a trial that just happened. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, and Anthony, I have to say, you did a really nice job of getting three people who are going to talk about, like, totally different things. Um, That's what short circuit's all about. It's fantastic. It's That's how like, we short circuit. It's perfect. It's and then you can see all the the parallels and relationships between different areas of law, which is the most fun thing. Um, so, uh, I was just litigating a um, very exciting voting rights case where three voting re restrictive voting laws that were passed during the 2021 legislative session were all on trial. Um, there were actually four laws initially in the case. We uh, invalidated one of them on summary judgment before the trial. Um, that law, just so folks know, was, a, was one that would have restricted 18-year-olds from receiving their ballot until they actually turned 18. 
And so essentially what the legislature had done, and many, many people in this room are aware that in Montana, uh, more than 70% of Montanans vote absentee. So we receive our ballots in the mail. Um, it, they're sent from election offices 25 days before Election Day. They arrive in your mailbox. You can return them in person. You can send them back by mail. Um, these are really um, sort of lovely, facilitative rules that we have that allow people to participate in democracy. Um, the law that was passed, HB 506, uh, essentially said that election officials cannot distribute ballots to people who do not yet meet um, their age and residency requirements. So that's people who have moved in the last 30 days or folks who are turning 18. Essentially, our argument was um, you can't discrimi discriminate against folks who turn 18 in the month before Election Day and, and allow them less access to the ballot, right? If if we say that you're that you're eligible to vote if you're 18 on election day, then you're eligible to receive your ballot at the same time as older Montanans. The court agreed with us um, and permanently enjoined that law before the trial started. We then um, went to trial on three laws. We This was a very complicated case, and I will not explain all of the moving parts, but I will just say there were three plaintiff groups that had been consolidated. My clients are youth organizations, their youth civic engagement organizations, Forward Montana Foundation, Montperg, um, which is the Montana Public Interest Research Group, and the Mont and Montana Youth Action, which is a truly fantastic organization of middle and high school students that do civic engagement education with their peers. Um, these three organizations uh, were essentially litigating these laws from the perspective that uh, whenever you introduce burdensome laws on the electorate, they are going to land more heavily on young people. You can sort of – this is intuitively true. Whenever you do something for the first time, it will be harder than, you know, come a year later or further down the line, you get better at whatever it is. Young people are in the particularly – I don't know whether it's um, – whether it's an enviable position or not, but – you know, in your when you're turning 18 and you're becoming an adult, you are doing a lot of things for the first time. And voting is neither the most important nor the least important of them. Um, and so we think it's really important that when we think about voting restrictive laws that create complications or burdens or challenges for people, that we understand that those are going to impact certain populations more intensely. So the other three laws that were on uh, on trial, and don't worry, this is quick. Um, <laughs> one of them, we can we can do them really fast. One of them eliminated election day registration in Montana. Um, Montana, since 2005, has had election day registration where you can show up at your local election office and you can register and vote on the same day, and you can do it on election day up until 8 p.m. Right? Um, it rolled that deadline back to noon the Monday before noon. I don't know why. Um, not confusing at all, I'm sure. Um, so that elimination is a really important thing because it in impacts a huge number of people. But specifically, it impacts young people. Um, people who are 34 years or younger in Montana uh, use Election Day registration at twice the rate of older Montanans. So they vote using Election Day registration at a rate of 30 percent, whereas 
older Montanans, it's about 15%. It's a millennial thing. Yeah, we're just into it. I mean, I will say, though, right, that millennials were constantly being replaced. Now it's Gen X, right? And, and there will be another generation. And we should care, I think, about the fact that these are the people that we put all our hopes and dreams on. Every every new generation, that's what we're doing. We're saying that the young people. Gen I mean, X never had any hopes and dreams. It's true. Yeah, you mean Gen Z? Z. That's what yeah, I meant. I'm sorry. Over Gen, Gen You're, X yes. Oh, thank God. I'm, yeah. That's it's an important correction. Yes. Thank sorry, you. Gen Zers. Um, but you know, I think in in serious this in seriousness though that the students in this room and the undergraduates on this campus are the people who are learning. As we speak, right? You you are the closest to everything that is new and um, the all the cutting edge information in the world, and that it never stops being true. Even though we sort of carry an identity with ourselves going forward, like I feel like a young person still, even though I'm now 34, and so I'm I'm not as young as I used to be, but I still count as one of those people. So if I used election day registration, you know, uh, I would be adding to my generations active use of it. Bottom line, it eliminated election day registration. This has a huge impact on young people. It also has a huge impact on Montanans at large. Thousands of Montanans in every single election cycle use it. Also, when we talk to election administrators about this, while they say it can have a minute impact on their day, election officials get up at 5 a.m. on election day and they work until 2 a.m. And that I have heard over and over again, and they tell us that it will not change if you get rid of Election Day registration. Legislature tells us that the reason they're getting rid of it is because of the administrative burden on election officials. That's not true. So you got to show up and you have to have some facts, and they couldn't do that at trial, which was a very fun thing to see. I highly recommend attending trial. not having facts? I know. Shocking. Like, what is this? Yeah. Um, No, they they didn't have facts, and they told us that – the legislature can make whatever laws they want to disenfranchise voters and they don't need to justify um, the decisions that they make because they are the legislature. Um, and really, you know, the legislative authority, the the Constitution endows with them with that authority. You know, there is a great recent Montana Supreme Court case that counters that perspective and suggests that, in in fact, the Montana Constitution is not a grant of legislative authority, but instead is a is a check on the exercise of that power. Um, so two more laws. One of them barred paid ballot collection. This was hugely important, spe- specifically for Western Native Voice um, and for other organizations that work especially on the reservations. Mail service is significantly less reliable. Um, this was not one of the laws that we challenged because we felt that the the tribes and Western Native Voice were best situated to explain the impacts. Although it it does, of course, impact young people as well. And then the last law was a complication, essentially, of voter identification laws in Montana. So young people, um, in particular, are likelier to possess a student ID. And this law made it so that if you're going to use your student ID to identify yourself at the polls, you're going to need a secondary form of identification. And in Montana, historically... We have never needed two forms of identification, regardless of what kind you showed up with, as long as it fit within the statutory criteria, either had your name and your photo or had your name and your address on a government document, good to go. Um, This law created a hierarchy 
in the identification preferences and it required um, it puts it put student ID in the second category. So it required it to be presented with a secondary form of identification. Um, to me, this seems facially discriminatory. Uh, there were comments made in the legislature about uh, how they wanted to see students have more stake in, in the game um, and that they questioned whether or not students with Montana University system issued student ID actually live in Montana. I will say that I think it would be difficult to get that form of identification if you were living elsewhere, but, you know, what do I know? Um, so those laws were on trial. They were – it was very – it was a very fun case to litigate. We had incredible witnesses. It was sort of riveting the whole time, assuming that you like expert witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> to, to a judge or a jury? <laughs> um, to a bench trial. So Judge Moses, who actually issued the um, – the order this morning from the bench on the on the trans birth certificate issue um, is where we are waiting with bated breath for his opinion. So when that ruling comes down, yes. how quick can it get up to the Montana Supreme Court? That is a question that we have been trying to figure out. Um, we expect that it will be appealed regardless of the outcome. Mm -hmm. And um, our 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 best guess for sort of how this will progress is that there will be a near immediate appeal. I believe that the um, the state expects to lose um, and is preparing with the $1.3 million that were have been uh, recently appropriated to the Secretary of State to defend against challenges to election laws. Um, this happened earlier this week, and we were a little surprised um, to hear of so much money being spent on an outside firm hired to represent a state entity essentially to justify laws that disenfranchise voters in Montana and doing so when we know we've seen cases in the past where the government has, um, and I realize this is not your question about how it gets to the Supreme Court, but it is really important. <laughs> Isn't it though? Yes. So well, the, I have a question about that in a minute, but keep going. Well, so the only the only interesting thing that I think is worth sort of having in mind when you think about that one point three million dollar fi figure um, that was tweeted yesterday after the committee met um, is that you know under the prior gubernatorial administration, Montana has Montana has to the state has to sometimes pay for fees whether it's from um, other attorneys who are litigating cases, or it's to pay outside counsel. That that does happen. Um, there is an example of a case where fees were paid to the ACLU for prison litigation that lasted for 10 years. Those fees were paid at the rate of $900,000 for that full 10 years of litigation, approved by the governor's office, sent out the door. It's the right, it's the way that these systems work. But to compare that to fewer than six months of legal work done by a law firm for just to defend a set of laws on the their constitutionality. Not we're not talking about prison conditions. We're not talking about people's you know being in situations where they're having real sort of torts enacted against them. Right. We're talking about laws that the legislature passed that they didn't carefully consider that have very little in the way of justification to back them up being defended as though the 
the defense attorneys are an insurance company coming in and litigating literally every, you know, it, it filing motions after the trial to get deposition transcripts in that they didn't manage to get in beforehand on the proper schedule. That's crazy. I don't know how fast we're going to get to the Supreme Court, but I will say that everyone wants to move quickly because having those laws, and I know that that's true for folks on the other side as well, I, I think that fundamentally, at least I really hope that we're all on the same page, that like having clear laws for voters is extremely important. And we we do know that when we change things and we complicate things, that that makes it much more difficult for people to get engaged and to understand sort of how to navigate the process, particularly because when you have organizations that are trying to facilitate that process for people, they need to know what the law is so that they can communicate it. So soon. So, so <laughs> soon. Well, that's good. And and soon we need to to end this podcast. But I do have a just a big picture question on um, on the work you're doing, which you you often hear um, in and I you know I don't know we don't do voting rights I don't exactly know where I come down on a lot of these issues but a, a big picture question is it seems like legislatures are really good and we know this in say the property rights context the economic liberty context the, the free speech context where we where IJ litigates that legislatures are really good at doing things that they think will help their own self-interest. So if a voting law is going to make the party in power, they think uh, uh, have less of the other side's voters come to the polls, yeah, they're going to they're gonna pass that, that law. Um, a lot of those laws are passed. Uh, on, on, I'd say, both sides of the, the aisle, they're passed. But it seems like in the long run, a lot of these laws aren't nearly as good at suppressing voters as they think they are. And the, I mean, the one that really comes to mind is voter ID, where it seems like we've had fights over voter ID for like 20 years now. And in the long run, it doesn't, it seems like most people vote any, it doesn't actually have a, a, a different partisan. Now, maybe some people don't vote, but that's made up for other changes. And so in the wash, like it doesn't have anything. But um, what do you say to people who say like, yeah, these laws, the, the, the motivation looks terrible, but it doesn't seem like it actually has much of an effect. I think that's all the more reason not to pass them. Like, <laughs> True, like, but what is that, where does that go to its constitutionality, I guess, is the question. Well, I guess I think that the, the impact of the laws – so we know a couple of things, right? We, there is actually very good data that suggests that you do see more restrictive laws tend to suppress turnout – more facilitative laws tend to increase turnout. That is like a well-established academic study. Don't quote me on numbers because I would not be able to say them. Um, but, you know, there, there are different centers that sort of define what, what qualifies. Online voter registration is a facilitative voting law. Election day registration and same day registration, which we also have sort of over the course of the period of the late registration period in Montana, it's too much information. But the bottom line is that we know that those laws increased boost turnout versus suppressing turnout. I think the question, in terms of constitutionality, I think that, that we have a responsibility to sort of think about the Montana Constitution as its own uh, document that, while informed often by federal law, also set out to intentionally raise the bar on certain um, topics. I think that suffrage is one of those areas we don't uh, the the right to suffrage in the Montana Constitution is really clear 
Um, it couldn't be stronger than it is, I don't think. I also think that the ways in which the Constitution and, and, and sort of the, the – it guarantees the right to a free and fair election free from interference of legislative – I can't remember all three of the things. But it – you know, it's really – it's an incredibly strong provision. And I think when we think about laws and, – and I can't speak to the the – U.S. Constitution in terms of voting because I, I think that a lot of what has happened under federal law has really diminished the value in some ways of either the laws being passed or the, the litigation. I'm not – it's it, – maybe it is a wash. But in Montana, it's clear to me that we value participation at an incredibly high level and that that our Constitution set out to protect the right to vote in an extremely strong and clear way. I've already said that. But I'm trying to think about how best to sort of say, you know, you passing laws takes resources. It also impacts people inherently, right? Every time any law is passed, it's going to affect a population. Um, it will change the status quo for some people. When we needlessly change the status quo repeatedly, we can suppress us activities, whether it's voting or otherwise. So I think the purpose of doing these things is to play into narratives that are essentially conspiracy theories about what's going on with elections and to do so in a way that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, that, that creates a longer-term foundation for increasingly restrictive laws. There, there is a point at, you know, you're right, we go back and forth about voter ID and, and it may or may not be, it may or may not be all that meaningful at the end of the day. But the reason it's not meaningful is because of the push and pull. It's because there's someone on the other side to push back when you have somebody saying, okay, we're going to require everyone to have real ID in order to vote. I don't have a real ID according to the federal government. So, you know, that would be a real barrier. Mm -hmm. And if, but as we increase that, if we make it more and more available, then we find ourselves in a situation where, okay, then we say, well, it was just a wash. What was the point anyway? But now we've poured so many resources into that whole process. And, and to what end? What did it accomplish? Any other uh, thoughts from you guys or clo closing thoughts? Apologies for the a little, vi a little vehemence. Fas fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think our state is in a in a really interesting and perhaps scary time. I mean, we we have a lot of um, people that are um, moving to Montana, and we have a lot of influences um, from out of state, and uh, so we're changing, and and that can be good. Change can be very very productive, um, uh, but we're also in a highly politicized environment, and so I, I think that you know there's. Um, there's a lot of reasons for young people in particular to be worried about their future. Um, and so all of these issues are seem to be at play in your case, and that makes it really interesting. And a lot for one judge. I mean, that's, you know, that's a lot for one judge to, to weigh upon his soul. And you may, you may find that he takes a bit longer to rule <laughs> than you want. Um, but, yeah, very interesting and, and terrifying, honestly, at the same time. His dad was one of the best criminal defense attorneys. <laughs> um, I will just say in closing, <clears throat> the Montana Constitution currently, it's, there's rumblings, right, about, and this goes to what Tasha was just saying about 
you know, is it a, is it a liberal red rag that needs to go? Um, I, I absolutely disagree. The answer is no. Right. I absolutely disagree. <laughs> it's actually a very beautiful document that has, I mean, if you delve into it, and if you haven't read the ConCon transcripts or um, the study commission, um, I brought my little nerdy. These are the commission study. This was written by a guy named Rick Applegate, who basically single-handedly undertook to draft comments for the new Bill of Rights. Um, and it's amazing. So these are online. Dig into them. Um, Professor Johnstone just wrote a book. Um, Fritz Snyder uh, wrote a book about the Montana Constitution. They're amazing. Dig into the transcripts. And if well-known didn't teach you anything, and it probably didn't, or at least <laughs> I didn't, um, invoke it. Use it. Don't just fall back on the federal constitution. Um, in fact, the federal constitution should... I mean, if you're doing habeas work, you should always invoke the federal constitution. <laughs> but yes. it shouldn't be the first thing you say. The first thing you should say is judge dignity and Batson or the 14th Amendment or the 13th Amendment, whatever you want to use. But don't forget about it because it's, I mean, if Justice, I mean, Justice Baker's ready to hit that nail um, and you're going to get new pattern instructions because of a footnote for crying out loud. Um, so it's a great document and just, yeah, it's awesome. As, as I'll talk, some of you will hear me drone on tomorrow um, and listeners can see on Zoom if you listen to this podcast in time. Uh, Mon the Montana Constitution is one of a very, very few, I think about three in the country that has an explicit right to earn a living. Um, so if you think it's a left liberal rag, um, that's a pretty libertarian left liberal rag that, that guarantees a right like that. So um, I think we can all agree it was, uh, it's, it's a, a, a great um, uh, document for the state from, um, from 72, and it's worth celebrating. It's worth litigating. And we're going to learn about more of those in um, months and years to come on short circuit. And these wonderful practitioners will be creating that law that we'll be talking about. So a big round of applause for them. <laughs> and to the listeners and everyone here, I hope that all of you get engaged. Mm -hmm.